Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode we'll be continuing our reading of Five Months at Anzac, looking at the medical side of the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, we're up to chapter 4, uh, where they leave Egypt and head towards Gallipoli. Apologies if you can hear rumbling of a sports car in the background. My neighbour continues to try and asphyxiate himself in his garage. And finally, a shout out to new subscribers on the Substack at 191419182.substack.com. Thanks for signing up for free and uh, you'll get the weekly newsletters going forward. Okay, let's get on with the chapter. Everything you hold for file is at stake. You are to start a career on the TV. Then we are to be on the Chapter 4 To Gallipoli. At midnight, we left Cairo and arrived at daybreak at Alexandria, the train running right onto the wharf, alongside which was the transport to convey us to Gallipoli. The Dardanelles, we called it then. Loading started almost immediately, and I found that I, who in ordinary life am a peaceful citizen and a surgeon by profession, had to direct operations by which our wagons were to be removed from the railway trucks on to the wharf and thence on to the ship's hold. Men with some knowledge of the mysteries of steam winches had to be specially selected and instructed in these duties, and I, well, beyond at times watching a ship being loaded at Newcastle, I was as innocent of their details as the unborn babe. However, everyone went at it, and the transport was loaded soon after dinner. We had the New Zealand Battery of Artillery, Battery Ammunition Column, 14th Battalion Transport and Army Service Corps with us, the whole numbering 560 men and 480 horses. At 4pm, the ship cast off and we went to the outer harbour and began to shake down. The same hour the next day saw us underway for the front. The voyage was quite uneventful, the sea beautifully calm and the various islands in the Aegean Sea most picturesque. Three days later we arrived at Lemnos and found the harbour, which is of considerable size, packed with warships and transports. I counted 20 warships of various sizes and nationalities. The Agamemnon was just opposite us, showing signs of the damage she had received in the bombardment of the Turkish forts a couple of months before. We stayed here a week, and every day practised going ashore in boats, each man in full marching order, leaving the ship by the pilot ladder. It is extraordinary how one adapts oneself to circumstances. For years it had been almost painful for me to look down from a height. As for going down a ladder, in ordinary times I could not do it. However, here there was no help for it. A commanding officer cannot order his men to do what he will not do himself. So up and down we went in full marching order. Bearer work was carried out among the stony hills which surround the harbour. Finally, on the 24th of April, the whole armada got underway. Headed by the Queen Elizabeth, or as the men affectionately termed her, Lizzie. 
We had been under steam for only about four hours when a case of smallpox was reported on board. As the captain informed me he had time to spare, we returned to Lemnos and landed the man, afterward proceeding on our journey. At night the ship was darkened. Our ship carried eight horseboats, which were to be used by the 29th Division in their landing at Cape Hellas. Just about dawn on Sunday the 25th, I came on deck and could see the forms of a number of warships in very close proximity to us, with destroyers here and there and a number of transports. Suddenly, one ship fired a gun, and then they were all at it, the Turks replying in quick time from the forts at Sedel Bar, as well as from those on the Asiatic side. None of our ships appeared to be hit, but great clouds of dust were thrown up in the forts opposite us. Meanwhile, destroyers were passing us loaded with troops and barges filled with grim and determined-looking men were being towed towards the shore. One could not help wondering how many of them would be alive in an hour's time. Slowly, they neared the cliffs. As the first barge appeared to ground, a burst of fire broke out along the beach, alternately rifles and machine guns. The men leaped out of the barges. Almost at once, the firing on the beach ceased and more came from halfway up the cliff. The troops had obviously landed, and were driving the Turks back. After a couple of hours, the top of the cliff was gained. There the troops became exposed to very heavy fire from some batteries of artillery placed well in the rear, to which the warships attended as soon as they could locate them. The Queen Elizabeth was close by us, apparently watching a village just under the fort. Evidently some guns were placed there. She loosed off her two 15-inch guns, and after the dust had cleared away, we could see that new streets had been made for the inhabitants. Meanwhile, the British had gained the top and were making headway, but losing a lot of men. One could see them falling everywhere. Chapter 5. The Anzac Landing The horseboats having got overboard, we continued our voyage towards what is now known as Anzac. Troops, Australians and New Zealanders, were being taken ashore in barges. Warships were firing apparently as fast as they could load, the Turks replying with equal cordiality. In fact, as Captain Dawson remarked to me, it was quite the most willing Sunday he had ever seen. Our troops were ascending the hills through a dwarf scrub just low enough to let us see the men's heads, though sometimes we could only locate them by the glint of the bayonets in the sunshine. Everywhere they were pushing on in extended order, but many falling. The Turks appeared to have the range pretty accurately. About midday, our men seemed to be held up, the Turkish shrapnel appearing to be too much for them. It was now that there occurred what I think one of the finest incidents of the campaign. This was the landing of the Australian artillery. They got two of their guns ashore, and over very rough country, dragged them up the hills with what looked like a hundred men to each. Up they went, through a wheat field, covered and plastered with shrapnel, but with never a stop until the crest of the hill on the right was reached. Very little time was wasted getting into action, and from this time it became evident that we were there to stay. The practice of the naval guns was simply perfect. They lodged shell after shell, 
just in front of the foremost rank of our men. In response to a message asking them to clear one of the gullies, one ship placed shell after shell up that gully, each about a hundred yards apart, and in as straight a line as if they were ploughing the ground for Johnny Turk, instead of making the place too hot to hold him. The Turks now began to try for this warship, and in their endeavours almost succeeded in getting the vessel we were on, as a shell burst right overhead. The wounded now began to come back, and the one hospital ship there was filled in a very short time. Every available transport was then utilised for the reception of casualties, and as each was filled, she steamed off to the base at Alexandria. As night came on, we appeared to have a good hold of the place, and orders came for our bearer division to land. They took with them three days' iron rations, which consisted of a tin of bully beef, a bag of small biscuits, and some tea and sugar, Dixies, a tent, medical comforts, and, for firewood, all the empty cases we could scrape up in the ship. Each squad had a set of splints, and each man carried a tourniquet and two roller bandages in his pouch. Orders were issued that the men were to make the contents of their water bottles last three days, as no water was available on shore. The following evening, the remainder of the ambulance, less the transport, was ordered ashore. We embarked in a trawler and steamed towards the shore in the growing dusk, as far as the depths of water would allow. The night was bitterly cold, it was raining, and all felt that this was real soldiering. None of us could understand what occasioned the noise we heard at times, of something hitting the iron deck-houses behind us. At last one of the men exclaimed, Those are bullets, sir, so that we were having our baptism of fire. It was marvellous that no one was hit, for they were fairly frequent, and we all stood closely packed. Finally, the skipper of the trawler, Captain Hubbard, told me he didn't think we could be taken off that night, and therefore intended to drop anchor. He invited Major Meikle and myself to the cabin, where the cook served out hot tea to all hands. I have drunk a considerable number of cups of tea in my time, but that mug was very, very nice. The night was spent dozing where we stood, Paddy being very disturbed with the noise of the guns. At daylight, a barge was towed out, and after placing all our equipment on board, we started for the beach. As soon as the barge grounded, we jumped out into the water, which was about waist-deep, and got to dry land. Colonel Manders, the ADMS of our division, was there, and directed us up a gully where we were to stay in reserve for the time being, meantime to take lightly wounded cases. One tent was pitched, and dugouts made for both men and patients, the Turks supplying shrapnel pretty freely. Our position happened to be in the rear of a mountain battery, whose guns the Turks appeared very anxious to silence, and any shells the battery didn't want came over to us. As soon as we were settled down, I had time to look around. Down on the beach, the first casualty clearing station under Lieutenant Colonel Giblin and the ambulance of the Royal Marine Light Infantry were at work. There were scores of casualties awaiting treatment, some of them horribly knocked about. It was my first experience of such a number of cases. In civil practice, if an accident took place in which three or four men were injured, the occurrence would be deemed out of the ordinary, but here there were almost as many hundreds, 
and all the flower of Australia. It made one feel that, in the words of General Sherman, war is hell, and it seemed damnable that it should be in the power of one man, even if he be the German emperor, to decree that all these men should be mutilated or killed. The great majority were just coming into manhood with all their life before them. The stoicism and fortitude with which they bore their pain was truly remarkable. Every one of them was cheery and optimistic. There was not a murmur. The only requests were for a cigarette or a drink of water. One felt very proud of these Australians, each waiting his turn to be dressed without complaining. It really quite unnerved me for a time. However, it was no time to allow the sentimental side of one's nature to come uppermost. I watched the pinnaces towing the barges in. Each pinnace belonged to a warship and was in charge of a midshipman, dubbed by his shipmates a snotty. This name originates from the days of Trafalgar. The little chaps who appear to have suffered from chronic colds in the head, with the usual accompaniment of a copious flow from the nasal organs. Before addressing an officer, the boys would clean their faces by drawing the sleeve of their jacket across the nose, and I understand that this practice so incensed Lord Nelson that he ordered three brass buttons to be sewn on the wristbands of the boys' jackets. However, this is by the way. These boys, of all ages from 14 to 16, were steering their pinnaces with supreme indifference to the shrapnel falling about, disdaining any cover, and as cool as if there were no such thing as war. I spoke to one, remarking that they were having a great time. He was a bright, chubby, sunny-faced little chap, and with a smile said, Isn't it beautiful, sir? When we started there were sixteen of us. Now there are only six. This is the class of man they make officers out of in Britain's navy, and while this is so, there is no need to fear the result of any encounter with the Germans. Another boy bringing a barge full of men ashore, directed them to lie down and take all the cover they could, he meanwhile steering the pinnace and standing quite unconcernedly with one foot on the boat's rail. And on that patriotic note, we'll leave chapters four and five behind. Um, worrying there the amount of casualties immediately and uh, the lack of water, the two things that uh, leapt out of the narrative there at me. Um, that's enough for this week. Uh, thanks for listening and uh, look forward to you being there uh, at the next episode of the podcast. Bye.